Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. It's a brand new year, and what better way to start that year than with a treasure hunt? Join me as Brenda Miller of Hartford Public Library and I explore the treasures of the Watkinson Library at Trinity College with curator Rick Ring. I'm Walt Woodward, and I'm sitting in one of Hartford's really special places with two of Hartford's very special people. One is my co-host today, Brenda Miller, who's the executive director of the History Center at the Hartford Public Library. Hi, Brenda. Hi, Walt. Good to be here. And across from us today, our subject of this podcast is Rick Ring, who is the... Give us your title, Rick. Sure. Head Curator and librarian of the Watkinson Library at Trinity College. Now, the Watkinson Library, I I suspect there are many people who know the name Watkinson Library but don't really have an idea about its collections or its mission. And we've come today to really kind of unpack the treasures of the Watkinson. And one of the treasures of the Watkinson is its mission, isn't it? unusual for any library, but it's pretty special. Tell us about the history and and what the Watkinson does. Sure. Um, so the Watkinson is named after David Watkinson, who was an immigrant. He was one of 11 children of Samuel Watkinson. Uh, they were prosperous uh, cloth merchants in England in the late 18th century, and they moved to Middletown, Connecticut in 1795. Um, The sons went to New York to clerk for businesses. The daughters tried to marry well, uh, as was the practice in those days. And David decided to move to Hartford in 1800. And he opened a dry goods shop right down on Front Street, traded up and down the Connecticut River, didn't have children, but had many nieces and nephews, and decided um, to will a certain amount of money to the city for a library of reference in 1856, so right before the Civil War. So this was something that was happening throughout the country. Lots of people were really trying to express their uh, philanthropic impulses by giving uh, libraries, especially, to uh, to cities. And what, Most, did, what did he mean by a library of reference? Sure, so basically, Um, At that time, it was housed in the Wadsworth Athenaeum, along with the Connecticut Historical Society and what was then the Hartford Public Library. Mm -hmm. The Hartford Library Company. The Hartford Library Company, which became the Hartford Public Library. Right. So um, the Connecticut Historical Society collected Connecticut history, but you really can't have history in a vacuum. You need um, resources that track the larger history of humanity. Um, so David Watkinson gave money for what he called a library of reference, supposedly uh, the best books in every subject. And if uh, those of you who recall the uh, world before the internet, uh, we have these things called books that basically are the expression of human knowledge and wisdom. So at that time, it was books that really held what you needed to know. 
Pretty good name, books. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> An amazing technology that needs no software. Do, do they have a Facebook page? <laughs> well, I think they have many devotees still. Oh, so the, the death of the book is a myth that uh, we try to, uh, to fight. So David Watkinson actually funds this repository that's going to have this wealth of information for researchers at the Connecticut Historical Society, and I guess the people of Hartford in general? Yes, it was intended to be a library of reference for the citizens of Hartford, um, sited downtown in the Wadsworth Athenaeum, open to all, but not circulating. I mean, you were supposed to come and use the books and newspapers and reference books there in-house. So he gave $100,000 to the city, which today uh, would probably be about $30 million. Um, <sighs> To, to found this. Now, the first librarian was actually the first state librarian, J. Hammond Trumbull. Listen, as a state historian and anybody who works on Connecticut history, that's one of the golden names you know because his name is on almost every volume of the state records because he also, I don't know how he pulled this off, he was the director of the Watkinson for a long time, right? Yes, right. He was also the state librarian. Correct. Mm -hmm. It was one of the sort of um, items of confusion because you had the Athenaeum, the Hartford Library Company, right. the Watkinson Library, and the Connecticut Historical Society, and you often had people working for two or even three institutions of the same institutions at a time, Basically, from the public's perspective, it was one institution. That really radically changed in the late 40s, 1940s, um, when the Athenaeum asked everybody essentially to leave. And so they were, you know, needed their space. And were they still housed at the Wadsworth? In the 1940s, yes. Yeah, all yeah. of us. Yeah. So um, there was a, <laughs> a five year sort of hand-wringing session between the trustees of the Watkinson. Um, there was uh, the, the Hartford Library Company was interested in it. The uh, University of Connecticut was interested in mm -hmm. getting the, the collections. So, getting the in collections. the 1940s, yeah. the Hartford Public Library. So, yeah. so the idea was that the Watkinson got rid of all its partners, but then it was going to look for a home for itself that wasn't the Wadsworth. Correct. It had grown from 12,000 books in 1866 to about 130,000 books in 1949. And it was a massive collection of both sort of garden variety reference books and rare books. So <clears throat> one of the very interested people was Don Angley here at Trinity College uh, in the 50s. He really wanted the Watkinson to come to Trinity and the board of the Watkinson wanted it to stay in Hartford. I'm not going to tell you the long story. We actually have a book that anyone is welcome to have for free because we have about 700 copies of them uh, that was published in uh, 1966, The History of the Watkinson Library. But essentially, they raised enough money to build a separate building for the college library. They moved the library of the college libraries of, of uh, 200 or so thousand books from Williams Hall, which is now the, where the president's office is, to this new building in 1952. And a service fraternity for two weeks or three weeks of the summer of 1952 carried 10,000 books a day from downtown to the third floor of the new, newly built Trinity College Library. So they walked them from downtown well, Hartford. They certainly packed them up and put them in a truck. I'm not sure, they, there's a description of this, but essentially if you think about 
10,000 books a, a day. day. Yeah. That's about 500 boxes. No, I'd say it's probably more like a thousand. But anyway, it's a lot, a lot of books. And some of these are huge, some of them are teeny. So anyway, that massive movement almost doubles the size of the Trinity College Library. It was a huge gift, amazing gift. And what we have today then, after we've grown it for some, you know, since 1952, is about 200,000 volumes ranging over 10 centuries of material from medieval manuscripts through early printed books, 18th century sermons to comic books. Um, it is an absolutely amazing collection. Yes. I mean, the, the, the breadth of it, and in some cases, the depth of certain areas is really extraordinary. But one of the things that I find the most extraordinary is that even though you're now housed in, you know, one of the country's truly fine private liberal arts colleges, it is still a public, the Watkinson is still has a mission to serve the public. Yes, and so to some extent, that is a function of the Watkinson's identity, and to some extent, that's a function of special collections libraries in general. In, in general, if you look at rare books libraries across the country in American colleges and colleges and universities, they do have a mandate to be open to the public. Um, but it's not very well known, and it should be better known. So, but as you say, our original mandate is to serve the greater Hartford area. So even though it's a bit daunting to some people to come onto a campus if they don't, if they're not affiliated, it absolutely is open to any adult person in Hartford to come into the Watkinson and study the materials from 8.30 to 4.30, Monday through Friday. Well, and one of the things that you've done as director that I think, you know, that builds on this public mission is you've created these creative fellowships, right? Well, those are for, <laughs> those are for undergraduates of Trinity. Um, I would love to be able to fund fellowships to you know the general public that would be a that would be sort of a stage two kind of a goal my idea coming into uh, to this position in 2010 was to really try to engage um, undergraduates with the rare materials with a kind of a, a structure that would really entice them to do to to engage with them not because they had a paper or they had an assignment, but because they were trying to explore on their own, using their own internal compass. And so the most people are motivated by either money or food <laughs> in terms of you know, the, the items that I can offer. Uh, so I, one of our alums was generous enough to fund this program. And um, so for five or six years now, we've had anywhere from sort of two to seven as many uh, a year of students who come in who explore the collections they don't necessarily browse the stacks although i do take them on guided tours and i teach them how to search but they'll find something that they're interested in i mean we have a thousand years of human history there's going to be something that you are interested in here 
that I can connect you with. Oh, so, yeah. the, they truly are. The collections are, are truly pretty amazing. amazing. Could I ask? I mean, just to better understand, is the Watkinson? Is it a? Is it a, its own five hundred one c three with a board of directors, or is it fully under Trinity now? It is fully under Trinity. There's no. There's. It's the same five hundred one c three as Trinity. Okay. However, we do have a board whose mandate is from the. Um, the General Assembly, or the uh, what would I call it? I suppose the the, the Office of Secretary of State, mm -hmm. or uh, but it is but the court basically. It's got a charter. It it has a mission to make sure that the endowment is spent for the Watkinson. So we have, you know, an endowment of roughly nine million right mm -hmm. now that is all been privately raised or you know was in, was brought over uh, when the gift came, and. That endowment covers our salaries, all of the stuff that we do, you know, all of our expenses, basically. For the for whole the library Watkinson. or just for, for the, the, just for the, so the Watkinson staff so is paid a, out of the Watkinson endowment. Right, and all of our acquisitions and, you know, all the, most of the maintenance. Now, I'm not saying that Trinity doesn't pay anything. I mean, obviously, we have a building, we have lights, we have, sure. you know, um, some sort of custodial, et cetera, but we try to you know, pay, pay our way. You know, we don't want essentially people who give to Trinity um, to think that we're buying rare books. You know, that, that money more, more properly goes to students and, you know, and the, the operations of Trinity. So you can give just to us, which is nice. Um, and so uh, that we find very powerful in some ways. Well, speaking of those rare books, Brenda, the, mm -hmm. uh, the special collections here, are I just find them astonishing, right? The, why don't you tell us, Rick? Just give. I mean, if we could spend all day yes, talking about. In the, fact, uh, you know, I know that you, I personally know you could spend thirty years here and still not discover everything. Why? However, uh, so often we talk about high spots, things that are mm -hmm. very sort of particularly impressive. So some of the high spots that we have, I think we were just looking at. Um, a set of Audubon's Birds of America. So that's John James Audubon, who was is really sort of the country's premier ornithologist, um, born in Haiti, raised in, educated in France, raised in America. Um, he's sort of a, a, a sort of a typical American success story, and he worked to produce this um, one of the most um, valuable and respected uh, rare books, printed books in the world. It's four volumes, 435 plates, and it's huge because he wanted to paint each bird actual size. Well, and I think, you know, I think people who have seen reproductions of Audubon, they've seen them maybe in a folio size, but I don't think they have any idea of just how capacious this book is. How You've got it on display as you come into the, the special collections room. How big is the book itself? Yeah, it's about four feet tall mm -hmm. and open. It's about four feet or a little bit more wide, about two feet wide, uh, maybe a little more. Um, it is not technically the largest book that we have. Um, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But it certainly is far and away, I would say, the most sort of valuable in terms of market value uh, book that we have. We have and here. the market puts values on these books this isn't necessarily the values that we put on these books. We tend to know um, what the high spots go for because a lot of the newspapers will cover these stories. Sure. Um, but 
you know, we're never going to sell it because this was a gift from one of our earliest alumni. It's been at Trinity since 1900. Um, this was a gift from Dr. Gurdon Russell, class of 1834, wow. who worked for Aetna for 50 years. I mean, it is really... I, a... I read Gurdon Russell articles <laughs> when I was in graduate That's school. That's right. Yes, yeah. right. So, I mean, you know, it is a Hartford... So if it's 18, 1834 and Watkinson gave the money in 1844, so did this was this one of the first pieces that came into the Watkinson no, collection? No, no. So or am I off so, here? Right. So the Audubon didn't come in until 1900. Until the 1900s. Russell was a, a really long-lived okay. guy. Okay. He was class of 1834, but he didn't die till 1909. Clearly, the, the physician healed himself. Um, he probably <laughs> took care of J. Hammond <laughs> Trumbull, too, he I would think. Did. Yeah. Um, I know that in 1909, he was the oldest living alumni because they covered the gift of that book in the Hartford Current. Wow. And um, in fact, if you do look up the Watkinson in the, in the old current files and the other uh, Hartford uh, newspaper files, you'll find often the newspaper would cover new acquisitions. Sure. When well, it was they downtown. did it for the Hartford Public Library as well. That's right. We used to run our new acquisition list in the paper. That's it right. It was wonderful. People used to care about They cared. <laughs> and they should care again. They should. They should. Now, I have to ask you, there are four volumes. This is one of four? That's one of four, yes. This is actually volume three. So volume we, three. We actually, uh, in 2010 or 2011, I purchased, uh, commissioned uh, a custom-made case so that we could show off this treasure. And we've been turning the page every week since I, that I, time. It's 435 plates. It'll take us about nine years to get through the set. We're just about finished with volume three and ready to start with volume four. In a couple of years, year and a half or so, that'll be done. And then we'll go back to volume one, plate number one. Well, the image that is up this week is of the king duck. Mm -hmm. And if I get a chance on the way out, I'll take a, uh, an image of that and we'll put it up on the website with That'd the podcast great. so That'd people can see it. So some of the other high spots that mm -hmm. we have, for instance, are the first edition of the King James Bible published in 1611. It's a massive book, you know, created for the altar, uh, basically translated by committee by the direction of King James. Uh, 2011 was its 400th, I think, anniversary. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of excitement around those copies around the around the country. Um, another high spot is uh, multi-volume. I don't remember how many volumes, but it's in the 20s, like 23 or 25, of um, the book that was produced in the wake of Napoleon's um, uh, invasion of Egypt. So the description of Egypt, which was produced by some hundred or so savants that he brought with his 15,000 troops uh, to Egypt in 1598 to record the culture and the history. There are these, and that's the other book that's larger because they're, they're in this 20 volumes, there are at least three Atlas volumes, which are larger than the Audubon, which have these massive, beautiful copper plate engraved maps, um, uh, views of monuments, the, pyramids, the Sphinx, all of it. And this is a just a beautiful, gorgeously produced, it took 20 years uh, to produce all of this, but that's the cornerstone of Egyptology. That is, that's where modern Egyptology begins. That's amazing. That's and it's really 20, 25 volumes. It's about 25. I so, can't, I mean, I have Do you have any idea how many plates there are in that? I mean, just dozens and scores of them. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many, but uh, there are text volumes and then there are illustrated volumes. 
many people, including Audubon actually, not, not many people know that there's a five volume text set that was issued kind of in accompanying with the, the plates. And the reason was, you'll never guess why, the reason was is that he had to deposit free copies at six libraries in Britain. To get the copyright? Because of the laws of licensing in Britain. So he put, a, he did a separate small format, cheaply produced text set so that he, <laughs> that he could good? get around because he didn't want to give away all the these beautiful uh, yeah right because yeah. they were incredibly expensive to sure. produce he essentially had a team of colorists sitting in what amounted to a sweatshop in the early 19th century in England um, coloring I mean when you figure it's 435 plates so they had to hand color with a, a an addition of 200 over 70,000 plates you know I, I, I had a PhD amazing. student who um, I was on the committee of who did work on these early colorists and her, her argument, and she makes a very convincing case for it, is that these women usually who were the colorists in these uh, projects like Audubon's were actually natural scientists who didn't get credit for their work because oh, they had to have a tremendous amount of knowledge to color these things accurately. And you couldn't just necessarily do it from even the description of Audubon. You'd have to have a real, you know, a real, real naturalist eye for what's going well, on. Well, and we, we actually acquired from a dealer in Kentucky a few years ago, uh, two or three of the, the examples that were hung in the shop that the colorists were following. So that has, has the notes on them, it has, you know, some really interesting, oh, right. if you're interested in the process, you know, we can actually talk about that at this collection because not only do we have those, we don't have an original, unfortunately, Audubon copper plate, one of the actual mm -hmm. metal plates right. that the birds were, but we did acquire two plates, two copper plates from an English ornithology set, uh, John Predue Selby. He was a contemporary of Audubon. They knew each other, they corresponded and to handle these plates and to see the, the basically from the metal to the proof strike to the finished product is something that you can do here at the Watkinson because we have the collection. That's wonderful. Do you, do you find people do do it here? I mean, as, as, would you say the Audubon is one of the more popular uh, pieces the most, in the collection? It's certainly the most well-known. Known. And so, and we have an ornithology collection of some eight or so thousand books going, you know, three centuries back. Uh, we have, a, I mean, a great collection of ornithology and natural history. Yeah. And we have, you know, some acquisitions money to acquire, you know, books that come up that we lack, uh, that come up on the trade. Do you, you, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Do you find you're part of the school process where you're, you're hosting classrooms on yes, a fairly no, consistent basis coming in here to look average, at these collections? We have a hundred classrooms a year. Okay. That's one every two and a half That's wonderful. days. So, I mean, if you average it out. Generally, the, um, the sweet spot of that is the middle of the fall, the middle of the spring, semesters. Sure. But we do, I, we do programs, we do tours, um, we do presentations. I'm actually going to be taking a few books tomorrow um, to show to a Capital Community College class that's um, a collaborative between the Stowe Center and the Twain House. Mm -hmm. So um, it's all books on um, 
Charles Dudley Warner and the Milk Farm. Well, that's one of those hidden gems you have here that I I think we should touch on just because there is so so much interest in your Hartford-specific collections, like the Charles Dudley Warner collection. Can you explain a little about what what that collection holds? So Charles Dudley Warner was sort of a colleague and friend of Mark Twain. He's not very well known. Um, nowadays, but he co-authored The Gilded Age with Mm -hmm. Mark Twain. We have most of his papers, I'd say over a hundred boxes of, you know, of uh, Charles Dudley Warner papers. I think that's wonderful. And, you know, lots of letters. And so it's a a really great um, archive uh, to kind of get into if you're interested in the history of Hartford. And we, of course, we have other, we have Watkinson family papers, which are very interested, which... uh, the, um, uh, a scholar in 20, 2006 wrote a book called Rum and Axes about the history of that family in Hartford. Oh, interesting. And uh, so, you know, and there, I mean, I could, I could list a, another dozen papers. Uh, Lydia classes. Sigourney, you've got... We have some Lydia Sigourney papers. Most of those are at uh, Connecticut Historical. There's some other... We uh, have quite a huge collection, too. Right. Because she loved she, to write letters. She, I mean, she was a letter writer. That's right. <laughs> she, she was nothing if not prolific. Yes. <laughs> right. So, and we have an excellent... We have over 200 copies of editions of her books. Mm-hmm. And um, we did have an intern from Indiana University who did a, a thesis on her based on our collection. So, and uh, for those of you who don't know, Lydia Sigourney is... A very famous Hartford poetess, I suppose mm-hmm. they, would, they would call her, the sweet singer of Hartford. I think she was the most published poet in 1844. She just actually that, eclipsed Poe I in thought terms so. of his the literary fame. And, and she would write an occasional poem at the drop of a hat. In fact, she would. when the charter oak fell, she quickly dashed off either a poem or a hymn to the Charter Oak. Oh, I know, and we have it in the collection, I remember. Yeah, that's right. Right, so... And she taught at the American School for the Deaf, or was she an early teacher of Alice, I think, who kind of started the American School for the Deaf. But... And so when... It's a good collection. When letters and... um, When letters and manuscript poems, for instance, or even manuscript articles that Sigourney wrote come up, I try to buy them. So that's, you know, we add, as, as we add pretty broadly to the collections, we don't have a tremendous amount of money to acquire, but we have enough to sort of watch the trade and see what makes sense and acquire it. And to show, you know, to show just the, the range, let's jump from the 19th century to the dawn of printing. You have some wonderful examples of, I love this word, it took me years to learn it as a grad student, incanabula, which, <laughs> right. which is... Yes, the basically it's the Latin word for cradle, and it expresses the idea of, this was the cradle period of printing from 1450 to 1500, where uh, European cities were, and, and printers were trying to figure out this new technology and make money. And so... Um, most of our incunables, that's what they're called, books printed between 1450 and 1501, um, are from one collection. In fact, J. Hammond Trumbull's sister uh, inherited the collection from someone. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting it completely right. I'd have to look at my notes. But that collection came in, almost 200 of them. Um, came in very early on and has been a treasured collection for a long time and mostly was assembled to um, 
to show the history of illustration in early printed books. So a lot of them are illustrated. For instance, there's a famous, very, one of the most famous, some people call it common, rare books is uh, called the Nuremberg Chronicle. Mm -hmm. And so this was a, a chronicle of the history of the world printed in Nuremberg in 1494. 1493, 1494, it took a, a couple of years to print. But there are hundreds and hundreds of woodcut illustrations of European cities and major figures. And we actually have four copies. Wow. Because they were, yeah. um, they were published in German and in Latin. And some of them are colored and some of them are uncolored. And of course, in that time you had to hand color them. So what we have is a Latin colored and uncolored and a German colored and uncolored. So we have kind of an entire set. And not too long ago, a company produced a page-by-page -page translation. And so an undergraduate student who doesn't know Latin or German, and German is really tough to read in the Fraktur, the old, old German type, but can still sit with these originals with the translations side-by-side -side and do interesting things with oh, them. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I have a time machine today, Brenda. Okay. So I want to jump from the 16th century, 15th century, up to the 20th century. Robert Frost. Yes. You have a lot of Robert Frost material here. Mostly because uh, Frost was a friend of one of our, I'm not sure if he was an alum or, or a donor. Um, again, the stories are, are legion and it's hard to keep them all in your head. Um, but not only do we have a really lovely collection of, it, of editions, lots of them have um, inscriptions in them from Frost to who, who he uh, gave them to. And one student actually discovered an unpublished Frost poem in our collection. And, oh. and it's, wow. on our, it's actually announced it on our blog. And um, we also, uh, Frost sat for an interview. One of the Trinity students who worked for the Tripod, the student newspaper, and I think it was in 1964, Frost was on campus. And there's a wonderful interview, which we have on CD-ROM now, um, that of Frost, and they talk about all sorts of things, but it's fascinating to hear him talk about the value of a liberal education. Well, wow. and that's really near the end of his life, isn't yeah, it? That, it is. Yeah, he was, yeah. I think, in his 80s. And... Would you ever make that available online or through the Trinity Library? Yes, I would love to. I, it's one of those things that's on my to-do list. I know, I can imagine. So you know what? That'd be it, popular. If it were possible, we might take a segment of it and, and fold it into this podcast. As long as I have the permission of the, the living alum who gave, uh, who oh, gave this interview wonderful. to us. That yeah. would be great. I think that would be fine. I think it would be really wonderful, yeah. So do we move ahead to the 21st sure. century? Because I think I'm, I'm fascinated by what you're now collecting. Do you want to talk a little bit about this new interest and, and why the Watkinson for this? So I wouldn't call it a new interest, more okay. like a rapid exploitation of, uh, of, a, of, of a, an unexpected um, opportunity. Okay. Say. So what we have, what we're really strong in... <clears throat> <clears throat> what we're really strong in is what I would call the long 19th century from about mm -hmm. America from about 1780 to 1920. Okay. But then a lot of that has to do with um, print culture, popular culture. So we have, for instance, juveniles from the time of Horatio Alger, the late 1890s and 19 teens. Just to clarify, when you say juveniles, you mean juvenile books. Correct. Yeah. Books. Right, Young yeah, adults. Not actual people. We, we, what we have are 
you know, stories that were written for boys and girls. Um, many times they had moral uh, purposes. You know, these were stories that that were that were written particularly to teach them how to become good people. And so, what that morphs into over the course of the 20th century, um, starting in the teens and 20s, is a young adult literature that increasingly becomes young adult focused. That is not paternal, but more entertainment. So for instance, the Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, um, the, there are hundreds actually of series that are produced in the early 20th and mid 20th century um, by almost one man, this, this guy Stratemeyer. Okay. So, and it, not many people knew this until the 70s. Huh. And so... Um, Same person did the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew? What he did, it's called the Stratemeyer Syndicate, he would hire young journalists and writers. He would send them plot outlines. They would write, and he would have them sign the literary rights over to him. So he made, he and his wife and a couple of, maybe a couple of people... In, this, in these offices in New York, produced hundreds of millions of books under these pseudonyms by buying the literary rights outright that from is people. Absolutely, and it is one of the it's one of the least well known kind of um, cultural, uh, you know, uh, facts of the twenty of twentieth century youth culture. Next, you'll be telling mm -hmm. me Harry Potter was a spot of my. No, I think no. that was legitimately. Um, written by her but honestly it's amazing because you're talking about the Bobsy twins well I you're wonder you're talking yeah. about um, the Dana girls not Tom Drew, Swift Tom Swift no. Tom Swift yes every treasured but I, that's not to say they you weren't isn't Tom that interesting Swift, <laughs> no but I'm familiar with Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys and right. the Bobsy twins right. and, and um, it's I'm sure there are others out there that would come Tom but, Swift and his magnificent flying machine right. oh now that's that. starting early on it was the Rover Boys and it was many many series of adventures right and, so and it's right. this one man and his essentially his the syndicate, syndicate that he would wow. he would he would hire writers he'd basically tell you the chapter mm -hmm. name he would tell you what happened, then you were to write the dialogue. And so he would outline every chapter, what the plot wow. was, and then he would send that to you. You would write the book, send it back, he'd give you $50, this is in the 20s. And so, so what do you? So a have? lot of women so, okay, probably. So, so I only. So do you that. have a full collection of these series? So we did have a gift collection, okay. about 800 volumes of these series oh. um, that came from the Southwest. That started the sort of 20th century pop culture interest, you know. Um, when did that gift come into the Watkinson? Two or three years ago. Okay, so yeah. during your, oh, yeah. your tenure here. Right, yeah. so this, this came up on a Rare Books listserv. Someone said, you know, this collector is looking for a place for her study collection of Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and other things. And I was the first one off. I mean, there were six institutions that were interested, but I answered first. And so she sent them uh, however many boxes to, uh, to us. We were delighted. Um, and that started me thinking about other kinds of things that might be interesting. Mm -hmm. And that's when this uh, comic book collection came up not too long ago. Um, and this is nobody who's attached to Trinity, uh, but he saw kind of what we were doing and needed, needed space in his home. 
and decided to, to give us about 10,000 comic books from the 80s and 90s, um, which we are processing now with volunteer help. So that, to me, that's a kind of a, another generation of print culture, American popular print culture, that has had a tremendous effect on American popular culture. So, so do you see these as, as precursors to graphic novels? Or are they a category of their own? Are they... I don't know enough about the relationship between, say, graphic novels, comic books, manga, and all of the other kinds of graphic texts um, that, you know, that have been developed in the last you know, 20, 30, 50 years. I do know that comics have had a huge following for decades. There's terminology, there's a tremendous fan base, so I figured why not start with a relatively small collection? 10,000 sounds big, but there are massive collections yeah. out there. Um, and I did send a little note out to other institutions to see how they handled these things. And everybody kind of does similar things with these, thi uh, with these. And so I just wanted to get into the game at a scale that was handleable for, mm -hmm. you know, for us. So. And have you had students working on this, uh, the comic books? Not have yet, you had... because we haven't. We we have to have an inventory before we we just got the okay. gift, you know, in August. Mm -hmm. So um, we have to have an inventory before we actually send loan them out, them out yeah. and tell, to tell people what we've got. Mm -hmm. But I do know that at least one undergraduate here, who's in the American Studies department, is doing her thesis on representations of Captain America since the '40s. So it's, you know, That's good the idea stuff. Of, it's good you know, stuff, yeah. How uh, patriotism and heroism and, and, and masculinity war. is represented in pop culture. That's mm -hmm. really interesting stuff and, and pretty relevant for today's, I mean, issues that are Absolutely. coming out every mm -hmm. minute today on Facebook. Absolutely. Wow, it's fascinating. You Isn't know, this wonderful? Yeah, I, it, I just want to move in. You know, I'll just stay here and go through, we'll put through you to work. collection after collection. We'll turn a page every yeah. day. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. I'll be the I'll be the resident You'll page. You'll be the page turner. Page turner for the Watkinson, my retirement gig. How's that? Um, you know, a, another of the things that absolutely astounded me was the number of songs you have in the collection. Oh, I sheet wanted music. to talk about that. You had a wonderful librarian here at one time too that wrote a book or. Collected musical history of Hartford. I think that was Margaret Sachs. I think it was. Yeah. yeah the names. So we, I think we have. It's hard to count these things, but we say generally twenty thousand pieces of sheet music, mm -hmm. and so some of those are bound in volumes. Some of them are are uh, just in boxes, loose. We have a, I would call a, a rather daunting card catalog file yeah. <laughs> um, that is your entree. Uh, but we do have, and we also, by the way, um, have over 10,078 records, and we have phonographs to play those records on. Wow. So, you know, it's what's, what we're really dedicated to is uh, encountering these objects in conditions that are as close to uh, when they were created as possible, and preserving them as such as well. Now, do you... <laughs> This brings up a question that I think uh, special collections people, special collections people all over the country are thinking about now: is the preservation of these technologies over time. It's it's great that you have the ability to play seventy-eight discs as they were recorded, mm -hmm. but what what do you think down the road? What happens to 
these collections when the needles finally give out on the old Victrola? Well, you can actually still buy needles for Victrola. So um, I think there was a piece on NPR at one point that basically said that everything humans have ever invented, somewhere somebody's still doing it. Nothing goes away. I mean, you know, whether it's yeah. mm -hmm. um, blacksmithing, whether it's whatever it is, somebody's using it somewhere. So that kind of gives me hope for the whole perpetuity idea, this idea that, well, what happens later? Do you mean I shouldn't throw out my eight-track tapes? <laughs> well, that... you may have to. But, uh, but that's I'm afraid a, you're going to have yeah. to. Yeah. If, you, if you have to, that's a condition that you're laboring under. Not, it's not about the tapes. And for, for us... Um, we, are, we can't really afford to be, or nor are we interested in being, for many of this stuff, the library of record, the library that right. says we are going to save these for all time. Right. I don't know that any institution can truly say such a thing. What we can do is be good stewards while we have them. So while they're in our care and while we've, we've taken the, the material from the per people that came before us, we try to keep them but also use them. It's a balance that we always have to walk between use and preservation. And for my money, um, the most exciting thing is to use them properly. So for instance, when we have a class that we have, we have a, actually a class at Trinity uh, taught by a professor called Downton Abbey in Historical Context. And so she will show things from you know, England, from the 20s and the teens, uh, from World War I, and when we had the last time we had that class in, I actually played a, a recording of over there, you know, that you would have heard at the time sure. on the machine you would have used at the time. Now, did that thrill the students? Who knows? We can't tell because honestly, a lot of these students, you really can't tell what's going on behind their faces because they're so used to looking at their phones. However, I think usually we, we really can say that we've reached them. And certainly um, parents, when they're here, are very impressed. Grandparents are impressed. Um, in fact, <laughs> well, I, all I can say is that uh, the experiences that we offer are legitimate. They're real. And Authentic. They do, yeah. they do have an impact. They do. And so, well, so, and in, in historical circles now, so much of teaching, the focus is on inquiry-based teaching, which is getting in the primary sources, getting in the collections, right. and letting students do the work of puzzling out the context. Yep. You don't just feed it to them. You give them the source material and say, you tell us what was going on. Right. I mean, so again, that's a balance. You, you, can, you can put a student in front of a, a bunch of 19th century letters, and they won't be able to read them initially. But if they put the time in, it's interesting how their eyes will start puzzling out what's being said. And it's really interesting to see um, how they, they actually begin to understand what's going on. And that's really the key. Now, it, it, there's still so many things in the collections we haven't touched on. But are there really important things that we ought to put out on the table for people to hear about whet their appetites? Well, I would say that if you're interested in the history of this country, if you're interested in the history of this state or the city of Hartford, if you're interested in, you know, literature, um, if you're interested, mostly Western, but we also have uh, quite a nice collection related to Chinese calligraphy and art, mm -hmm. Japanese uh, art, 
and a lot of, I mean, again, a lot of the stuff cross grains. So, um, you know, you, we, I have money to buy bird books, but often that will cross grain with our art collections because, because a lot of people who were interested in birds were interested in drawing birds and then depicting them in their, in their natural habitats, etc. But we have a big civil war collection that was collected during the war. And, you know, um, so there are so many things I would just say, trust me, there's something here for you. So come in and talk to us about what you're interested in, and we will co connect you with those things. Well, and that's, that's exactly where I wanted to go. If mm. people out there listening, uh, you know, you, there are going to be all kinds of lights going on in people's heads saying, I would love to see that. If someone is listening to this podcast and would like to come into the Watkinson and you know, just browse the collections or see something in particular. How did they do it? So basically, you just need to come in. It helps to have um, an idea that you're coming in because we have a small staff, but you don't need to. We are open from 8.30 to 4.30, Monday through Friday, on the Trinity campus. Most people here can direct you, <laughs> but we're, you know, we're on the ground floor of the, of the main library. And I would say that on your initial visit, just come in to talk to somebody and tell us what you want to do. I encourage people, especially um, young people looking, maybe they're just graduated college, they're looking for jobs, they have some time. Why not come in and do a little project and put up a little blog for your portfolio and show people what you can do? The resources here and the content is just so amazing. And this is one of the reasons why I, I did that creative fellowship program is to really get people just to come in and to ask some questions and to get some direction towards things that, that they would be really amazed about. And so um, that's how I would start. I would just start by you know coming in or calling. We have a website uh, off of the Trinity College website. I think it's a, it says library and then there's a little panel that says Watkinson. Um, but you know, there's a lot of information about the collections on there. And I've run a blog, two blogs actually, uh, for the last five or seven years. And there's a lot of stuff on those blogs that will, you know, you can, we'll do, you can you search through. around in. So that, again, just 8.30 to 4.30, Monday through Friday. Monday through Friday. No Any weekends, weekends? No weekends. No weekends. Yeah, we just do you do appointments? No, you just can't do it. It's just not, you okay. know, we've, uh, they have tried that in the past. Sometimes it, it works, um, but for the most part, it seems just it's just the, the 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 traffic doesn't support the cost or you know the expense of, of staffing it. But if we have more traffic, who knows, you know? And just so people, when they walk in the door of the Trinity Library before they get to the Watkinson, which right. is down the hall from the main desk, do they need to stop at the main desk? Is there a protocol with you have to have identification, only you have during, to have a library card? No, only during certain times of the semester, like when uh, there's, uh, when there's um, studying mm -hmm. for exams. At the end of the semester, generally, they'll try to limit... Um, the, the, the people in the building so that as many students as possible can come in and study. Um, but so you can come, you can come in. The only thing I would say is that, you know, we are a secure area. You are going to be watched. I mean, I'm not, not in a, in a bad way, 
But you know, we have valuable materials that we have that are part of. It's part of our public. But they'll training. actually get to see them yes. and uh, read right. them, and right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I mean, it, it's a little bit of a process to understand what it is. You'll have to request it, so you'll have to actually search our online catalog or talk to our uh, staff to to figure out what we've got. Can but, people access the online catalog <laughs> outside of the library? Absolutely, it's a completely free. You know, database basically. Terrific. Right off of the, uh, the library. So they don't have to go through the Trinity nope, College login process. Don't have, to have process. No network, um, you know, network access or anything. It's all that's part of you know that's part of uh, the public face. Excellent. Sounds good. Sounds great. Well, Rick, Rick Ring, I can't thank you enough. This has been uh, just a fascinating and really exciting. A overview of a place I really do think I could come live here. Well, you know, it, it is very uh, attractive. And I know that from both talking to my predecessors and also just being in the field, um, there's so many, there's so many things that you just don't know exist until you start trying to explore. And you'd be surprised at what you find. Um, if you're interested in the topic, and I would encourage you to go to not just the Watkinson, but, you know, if you have a college near you, you know, that has a sizable collection, most colleges and universities have special collections and they are open to the public. Mm -hmm. So, but I do encourage people to come in, ask questions. Um, and hey, you know, if you have collections that you think we'd be interested in, there's always a possibility of a nice donation as well. So I encourage <laughs> that that's how these places are built. You know, one small collection at a time. Well, Rick, I want to thank you. You've been a great neighbor to Hartford Public Library. I mean, we've always enjoyed. We come from the same home, yep. the Wadsworth Athenaeum, yep. and it's it's a it's an amazing special collections. It's been a real honor to talk to you, and thank you for the opportunity. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Rick Ring and the staff of the Watkinson Library at Trinity College. For more great stories on other Connecticut treasures, read Connecticut Explored. Visit and subscribe at ConnecticutExplored.org. And stay tuned for a new year of Connecticut stories on Grading the Nutmeg.